All right, let me pray for us. We are going to be in Psalm 73, and as you can see from the board, we're going to talk about the end of book th- uh, two, and we're going to get into book three um, tonight. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we will dive into Psalm 73. Father, I thank you that we have this psalm written for our instruction uh, from our brother Asaph. And God, even if he is a, a, a somewhat obscure figure, I know that the... Um, the wisdom conveyed through his words through Psalm 73 are written for our instruction and our benefit. And Father, I know that uh, they have been inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so Father, I pray that as we endeavor to understand the, the content of his psalm here, Lord, I pray that we would be intentional about um, seeking what it is that uh, you're trying to instruct us with tonight. God, I pray that we would understand the content of the psalm, yes, um, but also I pray that we would apply it to our lives and we need you and your spirit to help us do that. So God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be here with us to illuminate our hearts and our minds so we might comprehend and that we might apply rightly what it is that you have written for our instruction, for our benefit, and for your glory. So Father, we pray that that would happen now and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Before we flip the board and actually talk about Psalm 73, let us talk about where we find ourselves in the Psalter. Um, Incidentally, did I ever explain what this is? So the abbreviation for Psalm, individual Psalm, is PS. But if you do more than one Psalm, it's PSS. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Um, And it's not ever Psalms 73. It's the book of Psalms, but it is Psalm, individual, singular, 73. Neither here nor there. Anyway, book three is Psalms 73 through 89. And one of the unique facets of what happens in book three is we're done with David, essentially. Right? Uh, In the first 72 uh, Psalms in books one and two, um, there are 50 different Psalms that have ascriptions either from a title or uh, some historical context. Basically from books three, four, and five, I think there's only like three. Right, so we are clearly leaving David behind, um, and we are moving towards something different. And what happens is in the end of book 2, which is Psalm 72, in fact, if you have your Bible, just turn back. Somebody read for me the superscription of Psalm 72. What's the, what's the title given there? A Psalm for Solomon. That's weird. Somebody else have another translation? A psalm of Solomon, or if you want to be like the ESV, you split the difference, and it says, of Solomon. Okay, so when you read of Solomon, you could read that as, oh, Solomon wrote it. Or it could be read as, oh, it's a psalm that pertains to, that belongs to Solomon. Okay, if you look to the very end of Psalm 72, read for me verse 20, and what does it say? Go ahead. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, have ended. Psalms 1 through 72, books 1 and 2, are about David's life. And what happens in book 3, which is Psalms 73 and on, is basically, in very broad strokes, it's David's death all the way to exile, which is what we see in Psalm 89. 
right? So this is historically the context we find ourselves in. Asaph fits into that because he is um, a contemporary of David, but he also seems to carry on in ministry into Solomon's reign as well. Um, but we'll see him here in just a second. However, Psalm 72 is of Solomon, which is a really weird way to write it, and you don't really find many other superscriptions that pertain to language in that manner. And it closes with a benediction it's saying the Psalms of David, the prayers of David, they're done. Moving on, right? This is showing us that there is intentionality between uh, these books and how they're stitched together. Yeah? And then what we have is Psalm 73. What we're talking about tonight is in many ways a response to what happens in Psalm 72. Psalm 72, I think, is David praying for Solomon. Now, Solomon may have written it down, and that's where we can get it's a psalm of Solomon or it's a psalm for or a prayer for Solomon. That's how we kind of split the difference there. He probably wrote it down, but David was the one that like authored it in that sense. And it's really good. It's David praying for Solomon. Hey, I pray justice and wisdom would be in his life and that the kingdom would go out and it would be from one hand he would have the river and one hand he would have the, the waters. Talk about the Mediterranean, right? So he would have this rain, right? And then it's all good stuff. But then in Psalm 73, we see Asaph coming on the stage, and he's like, actually, all this is bad. Like, for all the great things that were prayed about Solomon and David's reign, I'm not seeing this rain that's from the river all the way to the sea. Like, something's, something is off here, right? And so we're going to explore that. So a little bit about Asaph. Let's talk about him. Um, there, <laughs> whenever I was growing up in the faith, when I was in college, I can remember people having a conversation as to whether or not Asaph was a real guy. And I think he is, like, and I think it's pretty clear that he is. If you look in 1 Chronicles 6, 31 through 39, specifically in verse 39, David is setting up out of all these Levites, these cats who are going to be leading worship, sons of Korah, right? And then there's also this cat named Asaph. Later on in Nehemiah 12.46, as well as 2 Chronicles 29.30, there is this clear ascription of like, there are these psalms of David and Asaph. So whether they co-wrote it, whether he was the singer and David was the author, whatever, don't know. He's a real dude. And his, here's my only point. He is somebody who is now in book three, he is carrying on this lineage of the Psalms of seeing David's life as being a pattern for those who are the people of God and who are going to suffer and are going to be brought into God's kingdom and be his people. He sees himself in that same pattern that David saw himself in, right? And he etched out what that pattern looks like in books one and two. And now Asaph is going to be along with him in that. Yep. Yeah? He has Psalm 50 all the way back in book two. And then basically 73 through 83 are all Asaph, okay? So we're going to see him here, and then we're going to be done with him. Because next week we're going to be in Psalm 86, beyond Asaph. Yeah? That's all of his. That's Asaph, right there. So what is that? 12 or so? So he doesn't have a ton, but whenever you look at David having, you know, the lion's share, and then you have unattributed... And then I think it's Asaph has the most next, and then the sons of Korah. And then Moses actually shows up with a couple. <laughs> kind of crazy. Which we're going to reference Moses today. Cool. Asaph. We good to go? All right. Let us read Psalm 72, excuse me, 73, and then we are going to be heavy on the outline tonight. 
and I'm just going to walk section by section and explain what's going on here. Yeah? Let's pick it up in Psalm 73, verse 1. This is a Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Keep in mind that word heart. Be looking for it. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And that word for prosperity is shalom. We'll talk about it. That immediately connects it to two different portions of Psalm 72. So this is a response to Psalm 72. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What happens in verse 4? He starts to describe them. For they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. And they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. It's like a chain. And violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten opposition. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse 13, all in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak this way or I will recount, you may have a translation there that's using the word for recounting. If I had spoken this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I went to the holy places of God, and then I discerned their end, the wicked. Truly you set them, the wicked, in slippery places, and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, and like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Does anyone have another translation other than phantoms? Famished? Famished. Image. Image. That's a great word. We're going to talk about it here in a second. And when my soul was embittered and when I was a pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God, and I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Somebody give me a snapshot. What is Psalm 73 about? Major movements, big sections. What do you see in Psalm 73? What's going on here? Well, it starts by being envious. Okay. Asaph is envious. I like that. And then as he goes through it all, at the end he's realizing, no, what is the best is, well, as we, we would say, being in the presence of God, fellowship with God, mm -hmm. that's what is true gain. 
There it is. He starts off recounting, and I think even in verses 1 through 3, he talks about how he almost went down this path. I didn't quite go all the way, but I was really envious of all the things that I was seeing. Like, they're fat and they're sleek. Their eyes are bulging out, man. They're just, they seem to be unworried in every way, and something's wrong. But what I know is that God's going to judge, right? That's ultimately where Asaph lands. And I think what you'll see with Asaph and with some of his other psalms, like, there seems to be this really clear balance of where he is struggling with what he is seeing going on around him and what he knows God is calling him to do and what his role as someone who is being faithful to the covenant is. And he's just feeling that tension, and he just talks about it. Yeah? Cool? All right, so let's talk about Psalm 73. We're going to break it down into three major sections. In each of those three major sections, I'm going to have two or three sections. It's three sections for each. Um, and so we'll get more precise. But what we have in verses 1 through 12 is that there is this peace that the wicked experience. Now, what we know what John just said is, do they ultimately have peace that they will experience? No, right? Which is where we're going to land down here at the very end. But right now, what he's experiencing is it seems as though the wicked are experiencing this peace, this shalom, right? That's where we'll talk about that here in a moment. Then what we have in verses 13 through 17, and I know it's not a very natural break. Um, there's a reason for that. There's a, there's a pretty particular Hebrew word that doesn't get used very often, and it's actually breaking up these three sections. But verses 13 through 17, this is when Asaph is talking about his struggles, right? Verse 13, all of this has been vain, that I've been keeping myself clean and free with innocence. Like he's, he's going to explain his struggle. But then what happens in verses 18 through 28, he's going to recount judgment for the wicked and salvation for those who follow God. Yeah? So you can see that there is a resolution to this psalm in general. Word? All right, so let's read these sections and go from there. And I'm going to be pulling from, this is like a hodgepodge of out of my own head for like the titles for each of these. Um, then these are from uh, Spurgeon. He called these sections, the verses 1 through 3 is the saint's sigh. <sighs> Truly God is good to Israel. Right, you can kind of hear it in his voice. He's good to Israel. But as for me, man, I almost stumbled almost slipped, right? So there's a mix between my own words from Spurgeon and then also uh, Jim Hamilton. Let's read verses one through three. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. So when John uses that word, he's pulling it straight from the psalm. He saw the prosperity. That word is shalom. Peace. The word shalom in Hebrew really more than anything carries the idea of fullness. You have everything. Shalom is you have all of the stuff. And when you have all of the stuff, you have security. You're not lacking anything. You have excess, this prosperity. You have peace. Right? You see how those words are related to each other? So he's saying, I'm looking out and these wicked dudes who he's about to describe in verses 4 through 9, and then the rest of 10 through 12, he's going to describe what their lifestyle is like. And he's saying it seems as though they are lacking nothing. And if you look in Psalm 72, verses 3 and 7, that's when David is saying of Solomon, I want peace. I want there to be fullness. I want there to be prosperity for his reign. Yeah. 
And then what Asaph is doing is he's coming along and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing, a, I'm seeing a, a, fullness, uh, a fullness of wickedness. I thought this was going to be different, right? And so he's just crying out. So we have verses 1 through 3. It's the saint's sigh. And that word that you see there is levav for heart. Lev, levav. It's kind of the same root word. It just has to do with the heart. It's mentioned in verse 1, verse 3. Verse 7, verse 13, verse 21, and verse 26 here in this psalm. So you can see that what Asaph is doing is he's kind of tracing how he feels about this situation through the rest of the psalm, talking about his heart. And just so we know, turn to verse 26 real quick, where he lands is, but God is my strength or the strength of my heart. Does anyone have another translation other than the strength of my heart? Or maybe you've got a little annotated number next to it and tells you to look at the bottom for a different translation. Rock. The word there is tsur. We'll talk about tsur here in a bit. Great word. Love that word. We're going to talk about Deuteronomy 32 and Exodus 31, 33. We'll see that in a bit. But the rock of my heart. You can see how he starts off with... Man, my heart's kind of in turmoil and in pain, but it ends with God is the rock of my heart. Yeah? So, we kind of see the, the contours of the psalm in front of us. Here's the problem with Psalm 72, and the world that I experience is different. That's what Psalm 73 is talking about. And Asaph is talking about his lived experience as he is observing this, this peace that comes of the wicked. Like, it seems like they have peace. Yeah? So verses 1 through 3, that is the saints sigh. And then what Spurgeon says is immediately following that is the sinners are singing. <laughs> the sinners start singing. So what happens with them in verse 4? They got no pains until they die, right? But until then, like, everything's great. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They got everything they want. They got no trouble. They're not stricken like the rest of us. They don't got problems like the rest of us. And I think Asaph is going, like, like me. I got problems, right? Therefore, pride is their necklace, their chain. Baal, uh, uh, Baam is the word. Like, it's meant to be, like, heavy. Their garment is Hamas. Does anyone know what Hamas is? Or does that ring familiar? Hamas is, it's translated a little bit differently, but in Hebrew, Hamas means violence. And then in Israel today, Palestinian Liberation uh, Organization, the PLO, is aligned with uh, an extremist group called Hamas, violence, right? They, these people, are strutting around with pride and violence as what they wear. Like, no one's going to be confused as to what these dudes are about, right? And they've got no problems at all. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes are swelling out of their head because of fatness, right? And their hearts overflow to follies. And here's the thing. You see their actions earlier, or excuse me, their, um, their experience, like they got no problems. And then it turns into, well, this is what they are like. They're fat and their eyes is just swelling out. And then it leads to different actions. And then we get to verse 8. They scoff and they speak with malice and loftily they threaten... Uh, uh, oppression, and they set their mouths against what? What does your translation say? Heaven. Heaven. Who are they setting their mouth against? What is Asaph getting at there? God. 
God. Uh, you know, hey, you keep doing that law thing. Have at it, man. Like, I, I'm not going to do that because God's not real. You know that, right? Like, you, you understand that's what's happening here. God's not real. You know? So what does it matter? Go do what you want to. That's what they're saying. So they are speaking loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens and, verse 9, and their tongue struts through the earth. Okay, if God does exist, why are you suffering and you're so good, man? Like, why, I don't know why you're doing all this. You see how their, their expression of what they are like and their experience in life leads to them actually telling other people, like, dude, why don't you just like, come over to this side? Pretty great over here. Pretty great. I don't have to worry about what I can and can't eat, what I can and can't do. God doesn't care. Pretty obvious, right? You feel, you feel the tension? Even with me, like, saying it in that way, like, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where, like, someone is teaching like this right here, and, like, even her, hearing that sentence come out of the dude's mouth at the front, you're kind of like, ooh, like, that doesn't sound very good, but, like, that's exactly what's happening here. They are setting their mouth against heaven, and they are strutting through the earth, and they're just daring somebody to, like, test them, right? So what happens in verses 10 through 12 is Asaph is going to actually say, but this is what actually happens. This is the result. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Who are his people and who is them that they are turning to? Who is his people? You know the answer. We're looking at verse 10. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Your translation may have a different line for the very end because there's a really hard phrase we'll talk about here in a second. But his people, in verse 10, who are they? Okay, two different options. Who are those two different options? Yeah. Yeah. So the comment there is that it could be a capital H, his, which would imply God's, and then a lowercase h is someone else. And just so we know, like, to be honest and be clear, like, that's an English creation. That, that's not used anywhere else. Like, so that is explanatory. But you've hit the nail on the head. I think, especially whenever we talk about verse 10, beginning with therefore... He's drawing a conclusion. This is the way they live. Their, their mouths are opposed to heaven and their tongues are strutting across the earth, daring somebody to cross them. Therefore, his people turn to them. Who is this? These are God's people are tempted to just follow along with them. Right? Um, does anyone have another translation for the last half of verse 10? Because it's a really weird phrase. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the rest of Scripture. In fact, you may have a footnote down there the probable reading mind says this, Hebrew is the waters of a full cup are drained by them. We'll talk about that here in a bit. Does anyone have another translation for verse 10? They drink in their overflowing words. So again, we have to answer is who is his people and who is the them. 
And what my contention is, is that his people are God's people, those who are righteous, the saints, and they are tempted to look at their lifestyle and say, you know what? He's right. God's not doing anything. So then they partake with it, with whatever their actions are. The marginal note that I put in there that I wrote whenever I was studying for this is that uh, God's people here are seeing the wicked prosper and then they begin to rationalize their sinfulness. You know what? Maybe there's something to this. Maybe I don't have to like just abandon the law, but like maybe I don't have to keep it either. Right? So they're just one step away from like fully joining in. And I think the, the idea of them being a full cup where God's like poked a hole in the cup and the water drains out, I think that's like an overflow of blessing that what they were promised is this cup full of water and then God's just going to like poke a hole in it. And then once you've got the cup and you think you're about to get all the good stuff with the rest of the wicked guys, next thing you know that thing's empty. And now you've got no blessing, right? It's being drained from them. Yeah? So verse 10 God's people start to rationalize the sinful activity they see around them. Verse 11. And then what do they say? Uh, how can we know God? Does God actually know what's going on? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Because let's be clear. Like from the outside looking in, if God is the one who is all about justice and he is all about making sure that the needy are taken care of and all you see is a bunch of people who are high on the hog, and there's nothing but injustice around you, that's not an improper rationalization that you could get to in saying, well, maybe God doesn't actually know about it. Because if he did, wouldn't he do something? Yeah. Does anybody feel that way at all today? Here's my point. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. We still feel this way, right? I mean, this is what Ecclesiastes is all about, is, which we're going to come to Ecclesiastes here when we talk about the word amal here in a little bit. It's referenced in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 like 12 verses in a row. Vanity, hevel, smoke. This is a bore to me. I can't figure it out. Like, I'm looking at life and it doesn't add up, right? But he's not done. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. They said, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. They even know it. Like, no, no, these cats, they're doing the wrong thing. These are the wicked. They're always at ease. And all they're doing is increasing in riches. Maybe it's not so bad. Right? They're rationalizing whatever the failure is in their wickedness. And they're saying, yeah, I see it. But it doesn't look too bad from where I'm standing, when I'm struggling over here, right? All right, so that's the first section. This is where there seems to be this apparent peace. And what I've already given you is where it's going to end is there is going to be judgment. We do end there, so like don't lose sight of that, right? But before we get there, what happens is Asaph is going to tell us about his struggle, and it's going to start off in verses 13 through 14. He's going to talk about what his initial um, conclusion is. Like, well, man, I... I they're not necessarily wrong. Like Something seems to be off. And then he thinks better of it, and he says, hey, I'm really glad I didn't share this with everybody because I led everybody astray. And then what he comes to is he goes to the temple, and he's like, ah, I get it now. 
I get it. There is going to be judgment, and there's going to be salvation, which is the last section, okay? Obviously, Psalm 73 is written after he makes the comments that, that come out in verses 13 and 14, right? Because he's got the whole thing written, right? That's just how writing works. Um, he is recounting this time. So let's look at verses 13 and 14. This is Asaph speaking. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So it seems as though this is Asaph saying like, you know, all these other guys aren't trying at all to keep the law and they're living like their best life now. And here I am disciplining myself, fleeing from sin, doing the hard work of mortifying the flesh and like keeping myself from just willingly enjoying life and everything it has to offer. And it feels like I'm getting beat up every single day. It feels like every morning I get whipped, right? That's what the word he uses there. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. <laughs> that's what it feels like is going on with me. And that's his initial conclusion. That's what it feels like. But then in verse 15, he says, man, I'm really glad I didn't say that to anybody, though. Right? Does anyone have another translation where it uses the word or similar word to recount? Does anyone have that translation there in verse 15? If I had said, I will speak thus, is what the ESV translates it. What does the King James say? I I will speak thus. That's the same exact word, incidentally, at the very end of... uh, the psalm in verses 26 through 28 where he's recounting the deeds of God. (laughs) So I could have recounted this to other people, but like I thought better of it. And I realized, verse 15, he reconsiders his conclusion. He's like, no, this this can't be the way because if that's the way it is, then God's not who he is. And I know him to be faithful. And so he says, I'm really glad I didn't share that with anyone else. Let me just be really clear with you. I don't care how mature you are, you probably shouldn't share every single thought that comes through your head. Yeah? Asaph was set up by David himself, like the chief musician in all of Israel. David says, hey, I want you to be the guy, and I'm going to co-write some stuff with you. I don't think Asaph was immature, right? And yet here he is saying, man, I'm really glad I didn't say that out loud. I don't care how mature you are, maybe there's some times that you need to really reconsider what it is you're thinking and where it's coming from. Because Asaph says, yeah, I could have led an entire generation of children astray if I said, you know what, that's right, let's just go do that. So then what happens in verses 16 through 17? He goes to the temple and he receives clarity. But when I thought how to understand this, how I understand wickedness, and it seems like they're getting away with it and God's not acting. When I was thinking about this, it seemed to me to be amal. Amal, this tiresome, weary task. It causes me trouble, right? This is the word that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes 1, 3, chapter 2, verses 10, 11, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and 24. He just rattles it off. I'm getting wore out trying to figure this out. I can't wrap my head around it. It is wearing me out. I can't get it. So what do I do? Let's just go to the place where I normally get some clarity. Let me go to the temple. Let me go to the the holy places, which is probably the sanctuary, right? And what happens when he shows up at the sanctuary? It seemed to me a wearisome task, verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned 
their end. And who is they? Who is the their? The wicked. Then it became clear to me. Weird. I actually, I read this to Anthony um, earlier today. We talked about God's transcendent and imminent presence. Uh, this is just kind of a bit of a throwaway line by Jim Hamilton. He says this, as the psalmist, as Asaph works through this dilemma, he is delivered neither by new evidence or logic, but simply by the presence of God. He just starts walking around the temple and he's reminded of the, the iconography. There's all this stuff, the embroidery from the, the, the veil between the holy place and the most holy place and all the lampstands and the altar and the way the colonnades are made. Like he is reminded all of this stuff is about creation. Like literally that's how the temple was built. It's built in such a way to remind us of the garden of, uh, not of Gethsemane, of Eden, right? To remind us of the garden and it's meant to remind us of creation and that's where God and his spiritual realm is overlapping with our physical one and in that place we're reminded like, hey, God reigns over both. And as Asaph is walking around, he's like, I get it now. Yeah, it does look like they're going to be in fullness, shalom. It seems like that, but the God who's in charge of all of this, he's just reminded of creation. He goes, he ain't going to stand for it, right? And then it just, a light bulb goes off. And then what happens in verses 18 through 28? He starts recounting judgment and salvation. So let's look at this first section in verses 18 through 20. Truly you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, and like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, you, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Let's read one thing. Notice how quickly they go from like they were sure-footed to now they are in slippery places and they are swept away instantaneously. Compare that back to verse 2 of Psalm 73. What does Asaph say? My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And then he recounts all of these thoughts, right? But when it comes to the wicked, what happens to them? They are intentionally set up in a place where they will fail. And when they fail, it is going to be a momentous occasion and they are going to come crashing down in an instant. Yeah? But to be fair, when you're up here and this is what you're looking at and your perspective is, I'm only looking at how bad things are, it sure doesn't seem like they're going to be swept away in a moment. Like, dude just built his fifth house, right? He seems to be doing all right. Like, what do you mean he's going to be a downfall real quick? Well, what we see here is that that's exactly what happens. 18 through 20 is that the fate of the wicked is they're going to be swept away. And that word that gets used, selem, is an idol, their likeness. When they appeared to be at their highest powers, God makes them to be swept away in a moment. Just like when you wake up from a dream. And what verse 20 says is, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself. So whenever you act, you despise them as tselem. Tselem is this really cool word because this is what you and I are. We are tselem. We are image bearers. That's the word from Genesis 1. Man, created in the image of God. However, you know what that word is also translated as? Idols. So in a very positive sense, you and I are a representation, an idol of God. 
right? And in a very good way, we are God's representative on earth. That is our purpose. However, when that thing that you are reflecting as this likeness or image, when it is, turns out to be a false god, what do we call it then? An idol. What happens to those idols? They get smashed. And who in this sense is the idol that gets smashed from verse 20? It's the wicked. In an instant, they get smashed because they are not rightly reflecting what they're supposed to reflect. Yeah? Does that make sense? In Hebrew, a great language carries all this meaning in it. But the point is, like, they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Even though they're created in God's image, just like us, they had veered off and they are now reflecting something they were never meant to reflect. This opulence, this injustice, this pride and violence, that's, that was what they were about. And God is eventually, when he gets up and he's ready to act, it's going to happen in a moment. Yeah? So, the fate of the wicked is described in 18 through 20, and then 21 through 26, Asaph is going to describe himself. So, they're burned away as phantoms, as these idols that they are. Verse 21, And when my soul was embittered and my heart was pricked, I was brutish and ignorant, and I was like a beast towards you. Does anyone have another translation other than a beast? An unthinking animal? I have yet to run a tra into a translation that does this, but that word is actually plural. I was like an unthinking animal, or really, literally, it's more like I was like unthinking animals, plural. His point is, like, it's even worse than that. I'm not just one animal. I'm like a whole bunch of them together, right? I was unthinking, right? I was brutish. Um, the beast there is plural. Like, that's how bad Asaph was until... He shows up at the temple, and he's reminded of God's goodness and his glory and his power, right? That's what I was like. Verse 23, nevertheless, now that I've snapped out of it, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. I would rather be with you. Yeah? I'm with you, and what does God do in there in verse 23? Holds his right hand. And how does he hold his right hand in verse 24? Because I think verse 24 explains how God holds his right hand guides me with counsel. How does God guide us with counsel? Say it again. You have God's word in your lap. He is with you. Is anyone reminded of Psalm 1 and 2 at this point? Because if you're not, go read Psalm 1 and 2 and tell me if Asaph doesn't find himself exactly where David did then. I'm going to be like a man planted by these streams of many waters. I'm not going to be swayed. I'm being led by you. There it is. So he says, I had been brutish, but now I'm continually led by you. I'm relying on you for instruction. Verse 25, whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That is a huge change, is it not? I was out there looking at all these dudes and all the cars they're driving and all the fancy clothes they have. And I really wanted that. And then he gets wrecked a little bit by showing up at a worship service, right? He starts reading God's Word, and he's like, ooh, yeah, that's not it at all. And then eventually he comes to the point of like, actually, I don't want any of those things. I, I just want you. You're the only thing I want, God. Yeah? Maybe we need to come to that same realization somehow. But he goes on, and he makes it a little bit deeper than that. Verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is my sur. He is my rock. He's the rock of my heart and my portion for now. Is that what your translation says? He's my portion for a time. Forever. Forever. Whenever we look at the peace of the wicked and we see the world around us, it is right for us to see, man, there's some opulence there. <laughs> like, they got some things. And frankly, they may have some things that could be useful, right? Even in the kingdom of God, that could be really useful. But when we look at it, a lot of times we're looking at it as such a small perspective that we're just looking at our own experience and comparing us and them. And we never have the long view of what God is doing in history and what he's going to be doing forever. Because the moment that we show up at a worship service and we're reminded of God's creative power and how he is sovereign over all creation because he's the one who made it. And we're reminded of the right perspective of eternity. That changes things now, doesn't it? And it's only whenever he's reminded of that, that's whenever he says, God, I want you to be my tzur. Let's turn to Deuteronomy 32 real quick. Deuteronomy 32 is uh, one of these cool songs of Moses. Um, it shows up kind of in an odd place because you have the curses and blessings of the covenant. And then it's renewed there at Moab in chapter 29. And then Joshua is set up to... to take over for Moses in chapter 30 and 31. But then chapter 32 is my heading has the song of Moses. And there's actually been two songs of Moses, right? There was one that he sang right after being delivered in, I think it's Exodus chapter 15, right when they crossed the Red Sea and here right before he dies. Let me just read a couple bits. Verse 1 of chapter 32 of Deuteronomy says this, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Many, or excuse me, may my teaching drop as the rain, and my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, and ascribe greatness to our God. I am going to proclaim his name. I'm going to ascribe greatness to him. And then verse 4, what does Moses call God? The rock. Tsur is this really old name for God. Old. Even that word rock, cliff, mountain, it can be translated as that very rarely, but like it carries this idea of like something that is immovable and has been there forever. That's what God is. And Moses, when he's talking about who God is, he doesn't call him Elohim. He doesn't call him El Shaddai. He doesn't call him Yahweh here. What does he call him? Sur, my rock. He is the one who is immovable. The rock, his work is perfect. And God, he is a, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. A little bit later on, you see him there in verse uh, 11, is it? Or 12. He mentions his name multiple times here. I didn't highlight every one of them here. Plus, this is a new Bible, so I've got all my notes all out of whack. Um, Point is, if you go read through Psalm 32, or excuse me, uh, Deuteronomy 32, you will see Moses call God Tzur, the rock, over and over. And the point there is, in the rock, you have everything that you need. That word Tzur is the first time it ever shows up is actually in uh, Exodus 17 and then later in 33. And this is one of those times, let's just turn there, Exodus 17, just real quick, because I don't want to mess it up. Exodus 17, starting in verse, uh, let's pick it in verse 1. 
All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at this place, and they started grumbling. And they said, give us water to drink. And they're like, hey, we didn't have any water. Moses, help us out. And so Moses cries out to God. Verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. They're ready to kill me. And God said, pass on before the people. Walk in front of them. Take with you some of the elders, some of the guys who should know better. And take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile. And behold, I will stand before you there at the Sur of Horeb, the rock of Horeb. And you shall strike Sur, the rock. Incidentally, later on, whenever Paul is recounting this exact episode to the Corinthians, he says the rock was Christ. Right? He recounts this episode in the later one that happens in Numbers. It's very similar. And I think what's going on there is I think Paul was picking up on the nature of this word, tsur, this title, this recognition of power and immovability of who God is. And he says, yeah, that was Christ, man. That's what he is for us today. And what Asaph is saying is once I got convicted of how things actually were, when I showed up at that worship service and I saw who you really were, I didn't need anything else. Why? Because you're the rock of my heart. I got everything I need in you. So let's turn back to Psalm 73. My flesh and my heart may fail. You notice he says, Levav again. There, the heart is going to fail. But you are the Tsur of my Levav. You are the rock of my heart. So do you think his heart's going to fail now? No. And now, you're my portion forever. Verse 27, 27 and 28 is the summary of the wicked and the righteous. And then we end here. For behold, those who are far from you, what's going to happen to them? They're going to perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. How many of us have been unfaithful to God? And if we read that incredibly strictly without recognizing more of the character and the nature of Sur, the rock, then we are going to be left just like, well, I'm just, I got no hope. But what does verse 28 say? But as for me, it's good to be near God. It's good to be near him. I have made the Lord my refuge. Why would I run to the one place that's going to ruin me? Unless that's not what he does when you cling to him. He says, I'm going to run to you, make you my refuge that I may tell that I may recount all of your works and I think some of those works as we're thinking about it here that should remind us of this worship service that he went to at the sanctuary at the tabernacle or if the temple was up at this point where he's reminded of all this iconography about the greatness of God and he's reminded like oh yeah he's the one who created all this stuff so I'm going with him not that dude yeah all right that's Psalm 73 so Simple question, do we feel as though sometimes wickedness is winning in the world? And if you're not, if you don't think that, then I, frankly, you're not paying attention. You're not. It, it seems as though wickedness is winning in the world, right? It really does. However, we know ultimately the end of those who are unfaithful to God is that they're going to perish. And their legacy is going to evaporate, and all that stuff they had is just going to go away. 
But as for us, those of us who are clinging to God, even in our failure to be faithful, we know that even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful, right? We're clinging to him. We are near him. He's holding us by the hand. He counsels us through his word. It's about progress, not perfection, right? Our goal is not to just bring an end to all this wickedness by our own effort. Like, no, I don't think you could do that if you tried. Our job is to remain faithful to the one who eventually will and to anticipate his coming. And what do we do along the way? Yeah, you might look around the world and it might seem as though the sinners are winning. The wicked are just kind of having their run of things. Yeah, it's going to seem that way. But you've got to continue to trust in the Lord. Yeah? Comments, observations from Psalm 73. Ed, yes, sir. So to recap and synthesize those comments from verses 1 through 16, 17, it seems like Asaph is really just observing everything around him. And it's not until he becomes introspective and considering his own position before God, then once he recognizes his own position as being near to God and someone who has not abandoned faithfulness to God, yeah, there's failure. We understand that. Asaph is not perfect. But even in his failure, ultimately he is staying near to God and that there will be a vindication is the word is the theological term that we would use, that there will be judgment for those who are wicked, which is what he was focusing on. And for us, we do the same thing a lot of times. We focus on the wickedness around us and we lose perspective, right? That's why I keep harping on in verse 16 and 17. It's when Asaph goes to the sanctuary, to the holy places, and he's reminded in a worship service of like, oh, that's right. This is a much longer game than I normally think of. God is sovereign. God is good. And he is one that I can cling to forever, right? That's good. Other comments or observations? Okay. Yeah, so many of the comment there is that you have a friend who's really struggling and she's seeing a lot of bad things happening and the only thing that she has to cling to is reading God's Word. Now, I think it would be foolish of us just to say, oh, just go read the Bible and all the problems are going to go away. Like, no, that does, that's not how it works at all. But what I will say is reading the Bible well, like seeking what the Lord would have for you, what it does give you is a perspective that literally you do not get otherwise. You cannot 
gain this wisdom and manufacture it on your own. Because if you could, don't you think Asaph would have done that? Remember, he's a pretty mature cat. He's one of the worship leaders of Israel. If there was anyone around here at this time that probably could have generated that, it should have been him. And he, as a worship leader, has to go to a worship service and be reminded, oh, yeah, it's God's word, his counsel. He's the one who leads me. Like, Yeah, of course. We need to be reminded of that. Does it mean just reading your Bible? Like, no. You should come to worship services. You should have conversations with people. You should grow in your faith in that way. Yeah, all those things, which is why we do this collectively and not individually. Yeah? Other observations or comments? Mm-hmm. You know, he has promised he'd take care of me, and people are like, wait a second. Um, more humble, I li- um, live by his word and stuff. I have to realize you, you get a better um, life as a Yeah, and I think part of what you're getting at there, Dave, is what Ed was saying is that, like, man, this, this whole comparison game that we do is a bit deadly and dumb anyway, right? Like, at best, it's going to expose the disparity between me and someone else, right? At best, it's just going to show me that it's there. But at worst, it's going to cause me to want that and lose sight of what God already has for me and promised and has guaranteed that he's going to hold me by my right hand. He's going to counsel me. Like, we lose sight of every bit of that, right? Incidentally, I said it earlier, but let's just make it explicit. Psalms 1 and 2, you should see that very verse. What is that? Verse 24. 23, 24, that you counsel me, you hold me by your right hand. This is what Psalm chapter or Psalm 1, 1 says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And here this dude, Asaph, is saying, Oh, no, God's got me by my right hand, and he's giving me counsel. And how did that come about in verse 16 and 17? He took a stroll through the temple. Yeah? He was, in, he was encountering God in a worship service. Other comments? Ed, yes, sir. Yep. The haughty spirit. Yeah, it's pride. So they Yeah. Yeah, so for those who didn't hear, like the the thing that was like the crowning jewel. Like, literally, that's the word that gets used there is for the necklace. The garment of, like, adornment is a chain or a necklace, and it's pride. Like, that's the thing that's most obvious. And whenever you look in Proverbs, what does God hate above anything else? Is what Proverbs 6 recounts? It's a prideful heart. <laughs> and that's the thing they're flaunting. Yeah? All right, so what do we do with this? What do we do? I think, one, here's the first thing that I'm going to pray for us and that, that I think we should pray that would mirror the tone and the content of the psalm is how many times have we felt down in our faith or felt down about circumstances one way or another 
And it comes Sunday rolling around and we're like, yeah, I don't really feel like going. Does anyone want to admit that like you've been there? Because I have. What I pray for us is the next time that does happen is you remind yourself of Asaph and it's like, no, that was the thing that made him have right perspective about what was actually going on. I've always been flabbergasted and frankly, even like agitated by college students who are like, man, things aren't great, man. I just, I'm almost skip out on church. And I get it. Like maybe you can talk yourself into through mental gymnastics of like, I'm not really going to worship anyway. So what's the point of being there? And I would say, yeah, because you're not going to worship anyway in your original mind state or your mindset, you need to be around people who are so that you can. Like, that's the whole point. Come, like, you're running away from the doctor whenever he's got the remedy. And you're like, ah, I don't, I don't want to do it. Okay, so how about for us? How about we remind ourselves that we need to be around the counsel of God, the people of God, and have perspective? One, let's pray that. Two, how about we pray and make sure that we are not, in verse 15, betraying the generation of God's children by saying some foolish junk because we're lacking perspective, right? Before we just rattle off some complaint and say, actually, you know what, maybe it's better that we just abandon this whole endeavor. Like, yeah, maybe we ought to be slow to speak. I don't know, maybe that's somewhere in the Bible. Somebody can look that up for me, right? Maybe we should pursue wisdom internally and with God before we start just spouting off nonsense. Yeah, because it'd be real easy if all we're focusing on is the things around us to lose perspective. And then I think the third thing for us to pray about is that we would tell others about this perspective, that not in a judgmental way of like, guy, I see how things are going for you. And I know you've got your mouth set against heaven and that your tongue is strutting through the earth. Right. I see that's what's going on here. Like, I love you enough to tell you your end is destruction. Right. Like, this is where that is going to take you. And that we wouldn't view this as like a really, like, looking down on somebody, but out of love and concern saying, no, 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 I want to be in the sanctuary with you, man. I want you to be the same type of dude that I am that relies on the Lord who is my tzur, my rock, the rock of my heart. I want that for you as well. Like, let this motivate us to do ministry and evangelism, right? Because, like I said earlier, there is no absence, there's no lacking of us noticing wickedness and failure around us to take the next step and say, okay, well, then maybe I should enter into that brokenness and give them a solution. Imagine that. Yeah? Because I think that's what Asaph is doing through Psalm 73. Psalm 72 ends on this really high note. This is what Solomon's kingdom, this is what the Davidic line is going to be like. It's going to be great. And then Asaph is like, is it? Because it doesn't look it right now. And what I read last week is that the Psalms are teaching us how do we intercede for people? Like, yeah, recognize this is the reality of the world as we see it, but there's also one to come that we need to be aware of. Yeah? So one, that we would not abandon the whole enterprise of seeking after holiness because it's not convenient for us. We don't feel like going to church. Yeah, go to church. Go to church. Next time you don't feel like it, remind yourself, go to church. And then also encouraging others with doing that same thing and having this perspective and that that would motivate us to do ministry. Yeah? Final thoughts before I pray for us to send us out. James 1.19, yeah? 
being slow to speak, right? I always, I, I, I always want to say slow to speak and quick to anger, because like, uh, slow and like, well, it's the opposite. You've know, you got to be quick to that. Like, no, no, like be quick to listen, right? <laughs> like, I always mess up the, the order of those. Slow to speak and quick to anger. That's, you know, actually, that'd be even worse, right? Be slow to speak, right? All right, let me pray for us, and then we will bust out of here. Father, we thank you that we have instruction from our brother Asaph of someone who has a clear mind and is able to see the world as it was in his day. And as we are observing the world around us, man, it sure seems as though wickedness is having its day and has been for a long time. Father, I pray that as we observe what's going on around us and even as we might be growing weary of keeping our hands and our hearts clean and in innocence, and keeping our hearts clean. God, I know that sometimes it feels like it's not worth it. God, I pray that we would be reminded of our brother Asaph, who through the testimony of worship with others and being around you, that we were reminded of what, what things are really are, what the score really is around here. And God, I pray that we would be reminded of that and that we would tell others. God, I pray that as we, as we go through the effort of not comparing ourselves to others and how deadly that can be, God, I pray that we would have a, a, a real candid recognition of what's going on in the world around us, but that we wouldn't um, fall into this, like, this judgmental tone of others, but that we would be motivated to give them the words of life so that they might experience you as the rock of their heart the way that we have. And God, that we know that the end of the wicked is this judgment, but for those of us who cling to you, there is salvation. God, I pray that you would give us opportunities to share with others what salvation looks like. I pray that you would motivate us to urgently want to tell others about what it is that you have done and accomplished for us. And God, I pray that this would cause us to more closely walk with you because we see you as the rock of our heart. So Father, I pray that as we are considering these things this week, I pray that you would teach us even uh, in quiet times by ourselves what it means to rely on you and what it means to draw near to the, the holy places um, with you, with the Holy Spirit residing within us. And God, if that's something that can be accomplished on a Thursday afternoon, God, I pray that you would do that through your spirit because there's no way I can. So God, I pray that you would do only the things that you can do and that you would receive the glory for it. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, next week we were in Psalm 86, so we're going to be right past Asaph and his stuff. Um, and then we've only got like four more weeks of this before we take a break and we start our new series in the fall. So Psalm 86 is what we're going to be next week.